Welcome, everyone, to 1001 Stories of the Old West. This is your host, John Hagedorn, and it's great to be with you today. There are few periods in history that offer as much excitement and drama as does the American migration westward in the 19th century. The American frontier offered freedom and a new life to tens of thousands of people who were willing to give it a chance. Many of them were from east of the Mississippi, and still others were immigrants from other countries. All colors, all backgrounds, rich and poor, it didn't matter. They had one thing in common. They all came for a chance to build a new life. These were their stories, culled from autobiographies, newspaper accounts, historical writers, and diaries, mostly written by or narrated to writers by people who were there and experienced it. I'll be sharing stories that take in the American frontier, which I define basically as everything west of the Mississippi by 1830, as well as the American Southwest, loosely called the Old West. You can expect to get some great history here, as well as hours of entertaining and informative accounts. Send us reviews and share with your friends who enjoy the West and its stories. That's all we ask. And now, this week's story. The title of our story today, Personal Reminiscences of Fort Phil Kearney and the Wagon Box Fight, from R.J. Smith. This story was written to author C.T. Brady in response to his request in 1904 for personal accounts which corresponded to his chapters regarding Fort Phil Kearney in his book Indian Fights and Fighters, which was published in 1904. We'll begin here with Brady's request for material and follow with the material sent to him by R.J. Smith. Author Brady, I take this opportunity of asking every individual, soldier or civilian, who participated in any of these campaigns or battles, who has any material bearing upon them, and who is willing to allow me to look over it, kindly to send it to me in care of the publishers of this book as soon as possible, as I expect to issue the next volume of the series next fall. Any such material will be carefully preserved and returned by express in good order, and due credit, also a copy of the book, will be given for any which may be of use to me in the next book, as in this one. It is getting late, as I said, to write the history of some of these things, and I am actuated by an earnest desire to preserve the records before it's too late. Who will help me? Since I began writing history, I've learned to disregard no authority, however humble, and to neglect no source of information, however obscure it may appear to a casual inspection. Therefore, send me what you have or can prepare, and allow me to judge of its value. American people are usually more familiar with the story of other peoples than with their own history. How often I've heard the charge made that there is nothing romantic or interesting in American history. I do not see how anyone could read even the chapter headings of a book like this and say a thing like that. Where are there more splendid stories of dauntless heroism, of subtle strategy, of brilliant tactics, of fierce fighting, than are contained in these pages? I may have told them indifferently, and may be the subject of just criticism therefore, but the stories at least are there. They speak for themselves. I could not spoil them if I tried. The facts ring like a trumpet call to American manhood, be it white or red or black. Cyrus Townsend Brady, Brooklyn, New York, August 1st, 1904. And now, our story today, Chapter 4, Personal Reminiscences of Fort Phil Kearney and the Wagon Box Fight, by R.J. Smith. As I was a member of the Carrington Powder River Expedition of 1866, I take the liberty of sending you a short sketch of happenings about Fort Phil Kearney. 
being actively engaged with others for some two years in making history of that place, I think that the account may be of interest to you. I left Fort Leavenworth early in the spring of 1866. At Fort Kearney, Nebraska, we found Colonel Carrington and a part of his command, consisting of several companies of the 18th Regular Infantry. Early in April, we received some recruits for said command, and in a short time started on what at that time was called the Carrington Powder River Expedition. We followed the Overland Trail, sometimes called the Salt Lake Trail, up the south side of the South Platte River to Julesburg, crossed the river there, then crossed the divide to the North Platte. From here we went to Fort Laramie. From this point we marched west to Musa Ranch, crossed Horse Creek, and followed the Bozeman Trail. This was a new road, and a shortcut to Montana. After following this trail 15 miles, we struck the North Platte at Bridger's Ferry. We crossed here in a ferry boat, a large flat boat attached to a large cable rope stretched across the river. We followed the North Platte River up on the right side to a point opposite to the present site of Fort Fetterman. At this point, we left the river and struck across the country, crossing Sand Creek and several other small creeks, among which I now remember the North, South, and Middle Cheyennes. They were then merely the dry beds of what would be quite large rivers at the time of the melting of the snow in the mountains. At a point 22 miles east of the Powder River, we struck the head of the dry fork of the Powder River and followed it down to the river. There on the west side we found Fort Reno, established by General Cotter in 65 and garrisoned by a few galvanized soldiers. The garrison had been greatly reduced by desertions during the winter, the soldiers making for Montana. Galvanized soldiers was the name given to captured rebel soldiers who enlisted in the Union Army to do frontier duty in order to get out of prison, and incidentally to draw pay from Uncle Sam. We laid over here for a few days, and on the 4th of July the Indians stampeded the stock of Al Layton, the sutler. The colonel made a detail of soldiers and citizens to go out after the Indians and recover the stock if possible. It was indeed a laughable sight to see the soldiers trying to ride mules that were not broken to ride, and those soldiers knew about as much about riding as the mules did. We followed the Indians to the Pumpkin Buttes, and I am free to say for myself that I was very glad we did not find them. Had we got in touch with them, we would have had the smallest kind of show to save our hair. The soldiers being mounted on green mules and being armed with the old Springfield muskets, and that strapped on their backs, a very few Indians could have stampeded the mules and, in fact, the soldiers as well. We, the citizens, had made arrangements that if the Indians attacked us, we would stick together and fight it out the best we could. Jim Bridger, our guide, was with this party. He was an old-timer in the mountains. I had two years' experience in the mountains and plains prior to this time. The rest of the citizens were good men. We returned to the fort safely, but did not recover any of the stock. A day or two later we left the fort. The first day's march was a very hard one, 36 miles to Crazy Woman's Fork. This creek was a very fine one, clear, cool, and very rapid. The command was badly demoralized by this long, hot, and dry march, no water between that point and Fort Reno. The soldiers had been paid off a day or two before, many had been drunk, many more thoughtless, and did not provide for water in spite of orders. I saw five dollars paid for a canteen of water on this march. On our arrival at Crazy Woman's Fort, the commanding officer detailed a guard to keep the soldiers from jumping into the creek and drinking too much water. We'll return to our story right after these sponsor messages. And now, back to personal reminiscences of Fort Phil Kearney and the Wagon Box Fight, by R.J. Smith. 
"'We laid over here two days to repair wagons and bring in the stragglers. "'Had the Indians been on hand, "'they could have cleaned up many of the soldiers at this time. "'From this creek west to the Bighorn, the country is very fine. "'Plenty of wood, water, and grass. "'In fact, it was a paradise. "'We traveled west to the forks of the Pineys. "'The big and little Pineys forked near where we made our camp, "'65 miles west of the Powder River.' On the 24th day of July, we moved to the place where we established Fort Phil Kearney. The grasshoppers were so thick in the air that day that they nearly obscured the sun from sight. In fact, it didn't look bigger than a silver dollar. The fort was built about as you have described it, and from the day that we established it until I left there, in November of 67, the Indians were very much in evidence and offering plenty of fighting nearly all that time. I was a teamster on this expedition, driving an ambulance team. "'made several trips to Fort Laramie "'and to Fort C.F. Smith on the Bighorn. "'This latter fort, C.F. Smith, "'was established by Carrington "'a short time after the establishment "'of Fort Phil Kearney, "'and was a two-company post. "'I was with the haymaking party "'down the Big Piney "'during a part of the summer of 66. "'During one of our trips to the hayfield, "'we were accompanied by a man "'who represented Frank Leslie's Illustrated Weekly "'as an artist. "'This man rode with me a part of the way. "'He intended to do some sketching near there, "'but I advised him to stay with our outfit. "'However, he insisted on stopping by the way. "'On our return, we found him dead, "'a cross-cut on his breast, "'which indicated that they thought him a coward "'who would not fight. "'He wore long black hair, "'and his head had been completely skinned. "'Probably it was the work of a band "'of young Cheyenne bucks. "'They could cut the scalps into many pieces "'and thereby make a big show of it in camp. "'Was very sorry for this man. "'He appeared to be a perfect gentleman. "'His thought was... "'that if the Indians found him, they would not hurt him, "'as he intended to show them his drawings, "'and also explain to them that he was not armed. "'Later on the Indians got so thick "'that we had to abandon this haymaking business. "'The day that we broke camp, "'we had a great deal of fighting with the Indians. "'I remember a soldier named Pate Smith "'who borrowed a revolver from me that day. "'This man was mounted. "'He rode too far ahead of the outfit. "'The Indians cut him off. "'Later we heard from the Crows "'that the Sioux caught him and skinned him alive.' This man was an old volunteer soldier. But what show has a man with the old-fashioned Springfield musket? One shot and you're done. I was at the fort at the time of the Phil Kearney massacre and went down with the reinforcements to that sad scene. Our men were all down when we got there and cut up in the most brutal manner, such as only a red brute would do. We buried them a little east of the fort. They fought a good fight, but were surprised and overpowered. As we approached the scene of action, the country was black with Indians to the west. The officers were clearly to blame for this slaughter. They disobeyed the colonel's orders, which were to guard the wood train to the fort and not to engage the Indians unless attacked by them. At this point, about two miles west of the fort, they left the wood train, crossed the Big Piney Creek, got nearly to the Pino Creek, and were ambushed by about 3,000 Indians, and Fetterman's entire command was killed. This band of Indians included all of the different tribes of the Sioux, also Cheyennes, Blackfeet, Arapahoes, and some young renegade Crow Bucks. I knew this latter statement to be true, from the fact that one member of Company C, 2nd Cavalry, had stolen a revolver from me some time before, and it was with him in this fight. It was taken from his body by the Indians. Next spring a young Crow came to the fort. I saw the gun under his blanket and took it away from him. If he was in camp on the Bighorn with his people, he could not have got this gun on the field of slaughter. I had been wounded about six weeks prior to this fight and had not reported for duty, 
but on call for volunteers to reinforce the Fetterman party, reported for duty, and went with the command to the scene of the massacre. You are in error in stating that there was no communication with the outside world during this winter. I made one trip with my ambulance to Fort Laramie. We had an escort of ten cavalry soldiers. We made, I think, three trips after this without an escort, using pack mules, the party consisting of two packers and the mail carrier Van Volzey, a very fine man and a brave one, too. Last trip up, I saw Indian signs in the dry forks of the Powder River, consisting of the remains of a campfire, not entirely burned out, and some Indian traps lying around it. I refused to make another trip without an escort. On our arrival at the fort, we reported the facts, and demanded an escort for the next trip, but owing to the fact that the stock was in such poor condition on account of the scarcity of food, they could not furnish one mount. They persuaded me to take one more trip with Van Volzey, which I foolishly consented to do. On the first day out I got snowblind, and on our arrival at Fort Reno, I requested him to get a substitute for my place. He refused to do so, and insisted that I accompany him to Fort Laramie. But after being on the road a short time, my eyes played out entirely. I had to return to the fort, and there secured another man to take my place. They made the trip down all right, and returning were accompanied by two or three soldiers who were going to join their commands. They had got nearly to the head of the dry fork of the Powder River when the Indians killed the entire party. We found the bones of the men and mules and some of the mail sacks. We buried the men's remains there. During the summer of 67, life was one continual round of fighting. We lost a great many men, but damaged the Sioux much more than during the previous year. The soldiers had better guns now and were far better Indian fighters. They had learned that it was safer to keep their faces to the Indians than as during the previous year, their backs. When you run from an Indian, you are his meat. On the day of the wagon box fight, accompanied by my partner, I left the fort before daylight. We went to the foothills to get some deer. A short time after daylight, we discovered a lot of Indian smoke signals on the hills and decided we'd better get back to the fort. In making our way back, we followed the little piney down for some distance and found that the country was full of Indians. We then struck out for the wood train. The Indians had got between us and it. We then went to the wagon box corral and got there none too soon. Your description of the corral is correct as I remember it to be. Its location is about right, except that it was not on an island. I never heard of Little Piney Island, and I do not believe such an island existed there at that time. The wagon boxes were of ordinary government boxes. They were set off from the wagons as the wagons were in corral. The intervals between were packed with logs, bales of blankets, clothing, sacks of corn, etc. As to the rumor of the wagon boxes being lined with iron, you are right, they were not. Up to that time, and during my time on the plains, I never saw wagon boxes so lined. The wagon box that I was detailed to fight in had no such protection, but we had gunny sacks of corn placed on edge too deep on the inside of the box, with a two-inch auger hole at the point where the four sacks came together. This made good protection for the body when lying down. As stated in your article, the tops of the wagon boxes were literally torn to pieces with the bullets fired at us by the Indians. Without this protection, the fight would not have lasted very long. There was a surplus of ammunition and guns. I had two Spencer carbines and two revolvers, which were six-shot army colts. During the first charge, I emptied the carbines and the revolvers less two shots reserved for myself in case of a showdown. 
"'the balance of our men must have fired as many shots as I did. "'The soldier that was in the box with me had a needle gun and a spencer, "'also one or two revolvers, "'and he kept them busy while he lived. "'This man was an infantry soldier. "'I don't remember his company. "'He was shot through the head, "'dying in about two hours after being shot.' "'Lieutenant Jeunesse had just cautioned me not to expose my person "'and to hold my fire until I was sure of getting an Indian at each shot. "'He had moved a few feet from my box when he was shot through the head. "'I think he died instantly. "'He was a grand, good man, and a fearless officer,' was Lieutenant Jeunesse. "'I told him to keep under cover. "'He stated he was compelled to expose himself in order to look after his men. "'I got a slight wound in my left hand. "'A bullet came in through my porthole, which I thought was close shooting for a Sioux.' This fight lasted about four hours and was very hot from the start. I'd been in several Indian fights prior to this time, but never saw the Indians make such a determined effort to clean us up before. They should have killed the entire party. They certainly had force enough to ride over us, but our fire was so steady and severe that they could not stand the punishment. Our men stood the strain well, held their fire until the bullets would count. In fact, shooting into such a mass of Indians as charged on us the first time, it would be nearly impossible for many bullets to go astray. In all my experience in fighting Indians prior to this time, in all my experience in fighting Indians, I never saw them stand punishment so well as they did at this time. They certainly brought all their sand with them. In charging on our little corral, they rode up very close to the wagon boxes, and here is where they failed. Had they pushed home on the first charge, the fight would not have lasted ten minutes after they got over the corral. Many dead and wounded Indians lay within a few feet of the wagon boxes. The wounded Indians did not live long after the charge was over. They would watch and try to get a bullet in on some of our men. We had to kill them for self-protection. Anyway, it was evening up the Fetterman score. They never showed mercy to a wounded white man and should not expect any different treatment. I had a canteen of water when the fight commenced and used most of it to cool my guns. You state that all of our loss occurred at the time of the first charge. This is an error, as the man in my box was shot after he'd been fighting nearly an hour. I think that his name was Boyle. Up to the time that he was shot, he certainly filled the bill and did his duty, dying with his face to the foes, as a soldier should. I do not try to estimate the number of the Indians, but as my partner said, the woods were full of them. This was the largest gathering of Indians that I ever saw, and the hardest fighting lot that I ever encountered. When the reinforcements came in sight, we took on a new lease of life, and when they dropped a shell over the Indians, we knew that the fight was won. Indians will not stand artillery fire. They call it the wagon gun. The reinforcements came just in time. One hour more of such fighting would have exhausted our men and ammunition. As to the Indians carrying off all their dead and wounded, here you are again mistaken, as many of our men carried away with them scalps, etc., taken from the bodies of the dead Indians near the corral. The Indians certainly hauled off all their dead and wounded that they could, but did not expose themselves very much in order to get the dead ones near the corral. On arrival of reinforcements, we immediately retreated to the fort. Captain Powell was the right man to command under such trying circumstances. No better or braver man ever held a lieutenant's commission than Jeunesse. As to the Indian loss, I think you've overestimated it. We thought that we'd killed and wounded some more than 400. However, you may be right in your estimates. We had the opportunity to clean up that number, and we certainly did our best to do so. After the massacre of 66, December, we received reinforcements, as I now remember, four companies of infantry and two companies, L and M, of the 2nd Cavalry, 
This large additional force, stationed at a four-company fort, and only provisioned for four companies, caused a great deal of suffering during the winter, resulting in much sickness and many deaths from scurvy. Nearly all of us were suffering from this disease. I have never fully recovered from the effect of it. Colonel Carrington was severely censured by the War Department and many others for the Fort Phil Kearney massacre, and I think unjustly. Had Colonel Fetterman and Captain Brown and the other officers in command obeyed his orders, the massacre would not have occurred, not at least at this time. Fetterman and Brown were daredevil fighters, always anxious for a fight, and took this opportunity to get into one. Captain Brown, on his calico pony, was a familiar figure around this fort. The boys called him Baldy. The Indians were very anxious to kill Brown. He was a thorn in their sides. While we to some extent laid the blame of the massacre on Brown and Fetterman, to be honest, we were nearly all partly to blame. We were always harping at the colonel to send a large force out and fight the Indians, but he always insisted on a conservative course. We all thought up to that time that one hundred good men could walk through the entire Sioux Nation. It wasn't just Fetterman. This massacre demonstrated that in a fight in the open, the Sioux should not have over five to one of us. I was well posted in regard to the Carrington Powder River Expedition of 1866 and the history of Fort Phil Kearney from the date of establishment to November 1867, and acquainted with all the officers and many of the soldiers and citizens. I probably would not have written this little statement of actual history were it not for the fact that in your article you stated that you got some of the record from the only living member of the celebrated wagon box fight. I am still in the flesh, and will pull down the scale of two hundred pounds. In all probability there are others alive, as we all were young men at that time. The history of the three forts established in 1865 and 1866, well written, would make interesting history, as almost every day was full of stirring events. Quite a number of the citizens in that country at this time were discharged volunteer soldiers and some rebel soldiers also. As a rule, they were hard nuts for the Indians to crack. It was noticeable that they would not take chances fighting citizens that they would take with the soldiers. After leaving Fort Phil Kearney, I went to Cheyenne and followed the Union Pacific Railroad to the finish. I was at Promontory Point in Utah when the Union Pacific and Central Pacific Railroads connected. This was one of the milestones in the history of the West and practically solved the Indian problem. The Indians fought hard for this territory. It was the best hunting ground that they had left. There were many half-breeds among them, and they were daring and shifty fighters. Respectfully yours, R.J. Smith. C.T. Brady left a couple of footnotes to R.J. Smith's recollections. Footnote 24. The serial publication of these articles brought me many letters filled with corrections, suggestions, and other material written by participants in the events described. Among them all, none is more graphic and more interesting than this from Mr. Smith, formerly Teamster with Carrington, which I counted a privilege to insert in this book in his own words. Footnote 26. General Carrington's map on page 27 shows the island. Mr. Smith's recollection is an error here. Thanks for joining us for 1001 Stories of the Old West. We hope you enjoyed this first-hand account of the wagon box fight and the situation at Fort Phil Kearney, which only lasted for two years. Many more great stories to come. And by the way, we'll be getting to Chapter 5 in C.T. Brady's book one of these days soon. It's titled, Forsyth and the Rough Riders of 68. 
It was Forsyth's original Rough Riders who immortalized themselves by that terrific fight on Beecher's Island on the Arikaree Fork of the Republican River in eastern Colorado in the fall of 1868, about 30 years before Teddy Roosevelt's Rough Riders stormed up San Juan Hill. We'll return soon with a brand new episode for 1001 Stories of the Old West. Until then, everybody, stay safe, and we'll be back soon.